Good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. If you're new to us, we're so glad you're here. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here at South City. Hey, we've been in a series called Doctrine where we've talked about some pretty deep theological issues, uh, and they matter because what we believe shapes who we are, right? It shapes what we think. It shapes how we live. It shapes how we raise our kids, how we spend our money. Everything about us is shaped by what we believe and how we live that out. So uh, today is, is no different. We're in our fourth message of five in our doctrine series. And today we're talking about the doctrine of the cross. Uh, but before we get there, we want to acknowledge, even as McKenna did, the fact that today is Palm Sunday, right? This is, uh, this is a day that churches have celebrations all over the country and, and there may be donkeys involved, right? Purple, I'm sure, is involved. This is a day we celebrate Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem uh, as, as the king, right? The king, the, the city would have been so packed around Passover uh, that some theologians estimate there were maybe two million people in Jerusalem. Well, I've been to Jerusalem and I've stood on the Mount of Olives overlooking this, the, the great city of Jerusalem. It's not great in size, it's only great in spiritual significance. It is a small place. The idea that two million people would have been in that city at one time is overwhelming. Uh, they even say that if two million people were there, then there would have had to have been around 260,000 lambs that were slaughtered for Passover, right? So you would have heard a lot of people, you would have heard a lot of bleeding. I think that's what they do when they, bah, they do their thing, right? So there's a lot of stuff going on in Jerusalem, and here is Jesus riding down the, the Mount of Olives on a donkey, and as he does so, he's fulfilling messianic prophecy. Look at Zechariah 9.9. 9. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So even as McKenna was talking about this morning, people in that moment see Jesus as king. They see Jesus even as Messiah. And so if they don't have cloaks to lay down on the road so that the donkey can, can not have to walk on the road but walk on their cloaks, then they're pulling off palm branches. They're laying branches on the ground before him so that he, every step could be covered as a king would, right? And so it seems like Jesus is finally receiving the worship he so deserves. This 33 years of life, and he's, he's not received this kind of worship like this. There, there could have been as many as 50, 60,000 people following him down to this great city. In fact, there's this one moment that plays out on the ride down the mountain where one of the Pharisees comes alongside Jesus and says, hey, you need to tell your, your followers to quiet down. They need to stop worshiping you. And this is the moment Jesus looks at him and says, if I tell them not to worship, even the rocks will cry out, right? So we hear Jesus is making this statement. They're right about who the king is. They're right. The thing that is interesting in this moment, though, is they don't quite understand all the aspects of what is happening. But what they do see is Messiah, and they see him as the son of David. We talked about this last week. Look with me in Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds uh, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, watch this, Hosanna, son of 
David, right? Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. See, the people were ready for Jesus to assume his rightful throne as king. They were ready. And they even saw him as the son of David. But what they wanted was for him to relieve them of their oppressors of Rome. They wanted a king that was ready to fight. They wanted a king that would go up against these people that have, have been so oppressing, oppressive, and, and, and horrible to them in their occupation of Jerusalem. They, they sort of got it. They sort of got that Jesus is Messiah, but mostly they didn't, right? This, this word, Hosanna, we, we sing it in songs. Uh, my family was singing some songs on the way to church today with the word Hosanna. It literally means save now. That's what it means. When we say Hosanna, it means save now, save right now, please. See, the thing is, is they wanted Jesus to be king. They wanted him to be Messiah, but they wanted him to save their nation, not their souls. They wanted an immediate solution to their difficulty. They, they wanted a solution to their, listen to this, political issues, not their sin issues. Does that sound familiar? Oh God, we want you to do something with this horrible situation in our government. But I don't wanna talk about me. I don't wanna talk about my brokenness, my sinfulness, my, addict, my addictions, my addictive behavior. God, save now from the governmental situation, not from the sinful situation we're living in. But Jesus didn't come to fight, did he? He didn't come to lead a rebellion against Rome. He came to bring, as Zechariah says, salvation and peace. After all, he was the prince of peace, right? If they had read just the, the next verse in Zechariah, look at it. Zechariah 9, verse 10, it says this. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Right? Look at the next verse. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus didn't come to bring war on this visit. <laughs> he came to bring peace. He came to bring salvation. So yes, he was king, they were right. Yes, he was in the line of David. He was, he was establishing his throne as king. Of course, we talked about this last week. That covenant is called the what? It's the Davidic covenant. And part of that is that Jesus would be king, but not just king over Jerusalem, king over the universe for all time, right? So we, we won't see this Davidic covenant fully lived out until we're in heaven and we see Jesus on his throne from everlasting to everlasting for eternity, right? That's when we see this Davidic covenant completely uh, made. But in this moment, we get a little glimpse of this covenant being fulfilled in Jesus. See, his moment here as he's coming down this mountain, these people are worshiping him. He's worthy of worship. But he didn't come to fight. He came on a mission to rescue and redeem sinners by dying on a cross. Thousands of people celebrating, shouting his name, Hosanna in the highest. But what's interesting is the text tells us about Jesus riding down on a donkey is that even with all this praise that he is so worthy of, he, he's so worthy to receive. Jesus is not taking it in. He's not waving to the crowds. He's weeping. 
Jesus is weeping as he draws close to Jerusalem. He's weeping. He's not receiving this worship. He's weeping for the souls of the people who are celebrating because he knows that in just a few days, they're going to crucify him. And their shouts of praise are going to turn to shouts of murderous threats. And so he weeps for their soul's lost reality. See, Jesus knew exactly what he came to do on this mission. He was fixed, in fact, on accomplishing it. There's a uh, scripture written about 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 50 gives us this, a little prophecy about Jesus' death. It talks about his scourging, his whipping. It talks about people pulling out his beard, which is incredibly painful and disrespectful. It talks about him being spat upon. But one of the things that's interesting in that uh, prophecy in Isaiah, it says that his face, speaking of Messiah, Jesus, his face would be set like flint, like rock. He would be set, his face would be set on going to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what his role was. He knew what his mission was. And Luke shows us a little bit of that determination in Jesus. Luke 9, 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But when people did not receive him uh, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Twice, just in that one little text, Luke is telling us how determined Jesus is. He knows his mission. He knows what he's come to do. And that's all he's thinking about. He is set for Jerusalem to become our sacrifice. He knew what he came to do. He knew he'd come to offer a sacrifice for us as our Savior. And only a few days after being worshipped as King and Messiah, he would be crucified as a criminal. So we talked about this Davidic covenant last week, and we see a little bit of that played out in this Palm Sunday story. And Jesus' death, of course, covenants are sealed in blood. We talked about that last week. Every covenant, in fact, is sealed in blood. And we're going to see that uh, today as we talk about blood and we talk about uh, the, this doctrine, this theology of the cross, we're going to see that there's a lot of it. Uh, in fact, every covenant we talked about last week, right, is sealed in blood. One of the things that I love to talk about this, I talk about it all the time, it's just fascinating to me, and it just further confirms my faith in, in Jesus and our Lord. And that is foreshadowing that we see in these stories. We've seen so much foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus, of his death, of his sacrifice for us. We talked about it in the garden, Adam and Eve, uh, God sheds the first blood in the garden to cover Adam and Eve's sin with skins of an animal, right? So that is, a, that is a foreshadowing of Jesus covering our sin, covering our shame, covering our nakedness with Jesus' blood and sacrifice. We talked about last week about cutting the covenant, about Abram cutting this covenant, and yet God's saying, just go to sleep, Abram. I don't even want you to be a part of this covenant. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the covenant on both ends for you. We see uh, Noah offer a sacrifice. We see the Mosaic Covenant offer thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. Just in this one Passover, potentially 200 to 300,000 in this one time, this one event. So we, all of these are foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for us. Of course, Passover was the celebration 
of the great Passover in Egypt. So the Jewish people, they're ready to, be, to leave Egypt. They've been prisoners of Pharaoh. And uh, Moses has tried to give warning after warning, let my people go, and he's, the Lord has sent plagues, right? And he gets down to this last one. And Moses says, let my people go, and Pharaoh doesn't. And so God is gonna send this final plague. It's gonna, it's gonna kill every firstborn son. Unless, Moses tells the Jewish people, shed the blood of a perfect lamb and put that blood over the uh, door face of your home so that when the death angel comes in, he sees that blood sacrifice. He sees that that's been paid, right? That's called atonement. When something's been paid, the atonement for your home is this blood over the door. And when he sees that, he'll pass over your home and your child won't die. Of course, all the Egyptians didn't know this and they lost their firstborn son, including Pharaoh. That moment, that Passover, is a foreshadowing of Jesus looking upon our lives. If you know Jesus as your Savior, he looks at your life and he sees, the Lord sees the blood of Jesus over your life, right? And he, he passes over. Your sins won't affect you. They've been given to Jesus. Eternal death passes over your heart, your life, because of the sacrifice of Jesus. All these foreshadowings. Of course, the Day of Atonement. Uh, you may see this. You ever seen this little, these little words in your calendar? When you get a new calendar, it says Yom Kippur, right? That's Day of Atonement. One time a year in uh, the temple, a high priest would go before the Lord into the holy place and into the holy of holies. He would take two goats and two spotless little goats. And in one, he would pronounce all the sins of all the people on a goat, and he would sacrifice that goat. He would shed the blood on uh, the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the Book of the Law, all these places all over, even on the people at times. And he would say, this is the blood of the covenant shed for you, right? And this is uh, the sacrifice of this goat would be made. Well, the other goat he would put his hand on and he would send him out. And it would be, that's where we get the, the term scapegoat. And he, this goat would be sent out into the wilderness where his, the sins won't, won't affect him. He can, he can escape. So it sort of represents us, right? The foreshadowing is Jesus is the goat that is slaughtered. His blood shed for us, for our sins, and yet we get to escape, and the sins don't affect us because Jesus has taken them on himself. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, at one point Jesus walks up, and John says, that's the Lamb of God shed for the sins of the world. It's to be slain for the sins of all the world. He takes them away. Of course, he's not talking about just a figurative language. He's literally saying of his cousin Jesus, Jesus will be sacrificed as we sacrifice the lambs in the temple and his blood will take away the sins of the world. I've listed today our main text. It's a, it's a short one, easy for you to memorize. Hebrews 9.22. It's simple, but it's packed with so much meaning. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Today I wanna to talk about the cross. 
See, we know, we know how Jesus died. We know relatively when Jesus died. We know relatively where Jesus died. The, those last two are debated still a little bit. But do you know why Jesus died? Do you really understand the why? Because as Christ followers, we need to live our lives with the understanding of what he went through and why he went through it. It's so important for us. So today we're gonna break down this conversation of the cross in two, two parts. Number one, the torture of the cross, and number two, the terms of the cross. So the torture of the cross, I want you to understand that the Romans, they were the ones mostly known for crucifixion, though they learned it uh, from the Persians. Crucifixion began literally just by impaling people on a, on a big beam. Uh, but they found out really quickly, people die when you do that, real quick. And they didn't want people to die so quickly. They were a, a torturous people. And so the Romans began to uh, find ways to make death last longer and to torture their victims longer and longer. And what they come up with is the cross. It's a horrific, one of the most horrific ways anyone can die. It seems like blood, the loss of blood may be the reason for death. It's not. The reason for death most likely in, on the cross is asphyxiation. They can't breathe. So these Roman soldiers, they begin to get more and more torturous in their design. But the cross is not just a method or tool of death. It's also uh, used in intimidation. Spartacus was a gladiator. And uh, at about 71 BC, he led a rebellion against Rome. And when he did, he had 120,000 prisoners that rose up against the Roman army. They were defeated. Spartacus' army was defeated by the Romans. And to punish them, they crucified 6,000 men along a highway for 120 miles. Do you think you're just, you know, out on a stroll with, with your own family donkey and, the, and you're walking down and, oh my gosh, there's a man crucified here. And for the next 120 miles, other men, 6,000 of them crucified. Would that be intimidating? You might go, hey, let's take vacation next week. Let's turn, let's go this way. That, that's, this looks like a better direction, right? So this is a, this is a method not only of, of torture and death, but unbelievable intimidation. They reserved crucifixion for the most despised of people, slaves, poor people, uh, citizens who were guilty of high treason. And the pain was literally so horrible, they invented a word for it, excruciating. You ever used that word before? I've used it. Oh, my back is excruciating. It literally, the word literally means from the cross to try and explain the, the, the pain the horror of this mode of crucifixion, this mode of death. Josephus, early Jewish historian, calls it the most wretched of deaths. Roman philosopher Cicero says, people shouldn't even speak of it because it's too disgraceful for decent ears. But I love this one. Early church father Tertullian, around the 200s, the second century, says that he noticed something begin to change in this image of the cross. Can I just interject this little thought? Isn't it like God that the moment of your life that feels the most horrifying, scary, difficult, devastating, God can turn and use it for his good? Have you noticed that? That's what he did with the image of the cross. Around the second century, Tertullian said, 
You know, these Christians, <laughs> these believers, they, they're not afraid of this image of the cross anymore. Now they're, they're writing it in the, in the gravel. They're putting it on their homes. They're wearing it around their necks, this image of a cross, this torturous death device now is jewelry. Some of you are wearing it now. But it, it, it's, it's not symbolization of death. It's not horror anymore. It's joy. It's life. It's salvation. It means so much more. And God has changed literally a symbol of intimidation and terror and made it a symbol of our hope in Jesus. As we talk about the torture of the cross, I want to just very quickly run down the stages of the passion of Jesus. Some of you would say, well, we don't have to do that, do we? Can we just skip that? No, we can't. The word describes it for us and therefore we need to take a look at it quickly as well. We need to understand every aspect that Jesus walked through for you. In fact, I would even say in this moment, from here on to the rest of the message, can you do something for me? Would you make the cross personal? You did this. I did this. My sin caused Jesus to go through these steps. Number one, Jesus had a sleepless night after the Lord's Supper and this time with his uh, disciples. He, he can't sleep. He even comes to uh, his closest friends and the disciples and he tells them, my soul is sorrowful unto death. Have you ever been so depressed, so discouraged, so stressed out, so worried, it felt like you were gonna die? That's what Jesus was saying. I feel like I'm gonna die just in my heart. So stressed, he begins to, to sweat drops of blood, which is a serious health condition that's a stress-induced condition and very rare. Jesus is literally feeling the weight of the world's sin, killing him. He's betrayed by Judas, sold out for 30 pieces of silver, which ultimately fulfills prophecy. There's a skirmish. Peter pulls out his sword and, and cuts off an ear of somebody. I think maybe he was going for the whole head, right? But he cut off his ear. And now Jesus has got to deal with, stop, stop, stop. He's got to deal with the stress of this moment and heal the man's ear. Do you think that maybe if you were about to arrest somebody and he healed somebody's ear, maybe you'd say, hey, guys, maybe we shouldn't arrest this fella, right? They didn't do that. They go ahead, they arrest Jesus, and as they're arresting him, every one of the disciples desert Jesus. Can I, can I ask you this question? Have you ever been rejected? I can tell you, without even hesitation, the most deep, wounding pain I've ever felt in my life is the feeling of rejection. About 10 years ago, I went through a season, the hardest of my life. Even now it brings tears to my eyes and pain in my heart. Can you imagine Jesus? And he knows. He knows it's going to happen. But they all leave. They all reject him. They all leave him alone. Then he's interrogated by Pilate, by Herod. Again by Pilate. And he's beaten. He's mocked by their soldiers. And then he's scourged. Now the thing about being scourged is this was a whip, one whip that had... Uh, pieces of metal, heavy metal woven into the whip so that when they would hit his back, it would literally tenderize the muscles in his back. After they had tenderized his back, then they would pick up another whip called the cat of nine tails. 
and that was woven together with glass and bone and, sh and shards of metal with the intent that it would catch into his skin and muscle and rip off ribbons of his flesh. Many, many men, many victims didn't live past the scourging, the, fl the flogging. Many people didn't live after this. So much loss of blood, so much bruising to internal organs that they would die right there, but Jesus didn't. So he was stripped naked, humiliated. He was continually beaten. He was mocked with a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. And then they strap the, the cross beam of his cross and they tie it to his arms. These beams would have been from 100 to 200 pounds. Can you imagine after a sleepless night, after being beaten and after losing so much blood, trying to carry this weight? And he couldn't. He made it a little ways. And then he falls down. We don't know if he fell sideways or if he fell face down. Scientists say if he fell face down, it's the equivalent of a car crash. At 60 or 70 miles an hour, it would have bruised his internal organs, bruised his heart. It would have been devastating. And so they give that piece of wood to another man, and he carries it to a place called Golgotha. When I was in Jerusalem, I went to Golgotha. It's a very interesting place. It's a rock face. It's about 50 or 60 feet high, a little cliff, all rock, and the, the, uh, the water has run in such a way that it has left what sort of looks like a, a face of a skull on this rock. Jesus wouldn't have been crucified on some huge tree where you, you couldn't touch him. He would have been crucified face to face. So if you wanted to come up and slap him or curse him or pull out his beard or hit him, you could. And they did. Jesus was offered a bitter drink of a sponge, which was sort of meant to lessen the pain of crucifixion, lessen the pain of the nails that were about to go into his hands and feet. But one thing you don't really know about is they offered this, this drink to him on a sponge. And a sponge was the, uh, was the uh, equivalent in that time period in, in the first century to toilet paper. This is what they use for toilet paper. So you can imagine what they're trying to do. That not only are they, they trying to give Jesus this, this horrible drink, and he spits it out because he wants to be lucid. He wants to feel everything in this sacrifice, but they want to abuse him with this disgusting sponge, forcing it in his mouth. And then they lay him on a cross. And they drive spikes into his wrist because if they had driven them into his hand, the flesh and bone strokes of the hand wouldn't hold him. But if you would drive the spikes into his wrist, your bone structure would hold your weight. But it is one of the most painful nerve centers on the body. His arms would have been on fire. They drove a spike through his feet, ultimately going through his heel. His feet, his legs, his whole body on fire with pain. Then they stand him up, and as they stand him up, they drop the cross into a hole, and his whole body would have racked onto his bones and onto those nails. He's mocked by these thieves next to him. They ridicule him. To breathe at all is torturous because he has to push up on those spikes and pull up on those spikes just to get a breath. And then slump down for as long as he can take it and pull up again to get another breath. 
Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. We don't know how long he was alive on the cross. We don't know how long he was dead on the cross. But the Bible tells us in Isaiah 52 and another prophecy that Jesus' face began to change. Now, I remember in the 2000s when uh, the L.A. riots were going on and Rodney King was so mercilessly beaten and brutalized that his face, I saw a picture of his face, he didn't look like himself. It was, he had literally just a round head of, of being swollen and beaten. And Isaiah 52 says that Jesus was so disfigured, he not only didn't look like Jesus, he didn't look like a human being. I don't believe it was just swelling. I don't believe it was just trauma. I believe it was also the sin weight of the world on his life. He was unrecognizable. Jesus became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He was unrecognizable. And then Jesus Becoming sin for us is now abandoned by the Father. God the Father turns his back on his son. This is the first time in eternity past, in all of his human existence, that the Father has not been with him. But God cannot look upon sin, so he turns his back on Jesus, representing the sin of you and me so that God would never have to turn us back on you and me. And Jesus exclaims, it is finished. Like he's saying, the price is paid, right? The covenant is complete, the mission is accomplished. And then the last thing he says is, into your hands I commit my spirit, knowing that the Father would receive him. And Jesus dies. This was, of course, a holy event in Jerusalem, and uh, Levitical law said that they couldn't leave a man on a cross past sundown. And so if you were still hanging on this, on this cross and you weren't dead, then the soldiers would come by and they would break your legs, which is horrific. But the purpose wasn't broken legs. The purpose was so you can't push up to breathe, and it would cause you to stay there and die by asphyxiation. Well, they did that to the, thie the thieves next to him. They broke their legs. But when they came to Jesus, Jesus was already dead. And there's a prophecy that says Jesus will have no broken bones, and he didn't. So instead of breaking his legs, they come by with a spear, and they thrust that spear through his side into his heart. And out of that wound flows blood and water, which is evidence of a heart attack. It's hard to think through these specifics, these realities that Jesus faced because he faced emotional pain. Right? He, he faced uh, stress and rejection and disappointment and humiliation. He faced physical pain like no other human in history because of our sin weighed upon him. Physical pain was weariness and being beaten and scourged and the crown of thorns and the nails and ultimately his death, but he also faced the most taxing pain, and that is spiritual pain, our sin. 
becoming sin for us, bearing the wrath of God for us, being separated by the Father for us. So the cross of Christ, yes, it was torturous, but why did he have to die? He had to die because we needed a savior, right? We needed a savior. I keep thinking, Lord, and maybe you've asked this question, God, was there no other way? Was there no other solution? And evidently there wasn't because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 9.22, there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to pay the price for us so that we might have a relationship with God. So I also want to talk about the terms of the cross, the why of Jesus' death. The first one is this, penal substitutionary atonement. It's a big, big term. Remember when I said a minute ago in the covenants that atonement means payment. And so when the, uh, the uh, Jewish people in Egypt put the blood over their door, that was payment, that was atonement over their home so that the death angel would pass over. The death angel was satisfied in that home, in that obedience, in that faith. Let me break this down. You know we have a penal system, right? You break the law, you're gonna go into our penalty system. That's what that means. The penal system is a penalty system. We all have a penalty to pay because of our sin. And it has to be paid. That's the atonement. But Jesus in his love for us, God the Father in his love for us sending Jesus, as our substitute for us. That is penal substitutionary atonement. Penalty, substitute, payment. Christ was our substitute. You see, before we get too deep into some of these terms, I want us to talk about the reality of that. You can't talk about atonement before you talk about the holiness of God. God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly just. So God just can't go, uh, yeah, I love you. Okay, let's not worry about that sin. Uh, okay, let's just forget about that one. God cannot do that. Because as soon as God were to do that, it would make him not just. It would make him not holy. So God has to carry through with the punishment of sin. And every sin and every sinner will be punished. Everyone. I like the way John MacArthur explains it so, so well. He says, because of sin, mankind is guilty of breaking God's law, has incurred his righteous wrath, and is therefore alienated from him. Though God's love motivates him to save and forgive, man's sin cannot simply be overlooked. For God to reconcile such guilty sinners to himself, sin must be punished, the broken law must be satisfied, and God's wrath must be justly assuaged. All these object, objectives are met in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law, paid sin's penalty, and extinguished God's wrath. This beautiful verse we sang of it this morning that so explains penal substitutionary atonement. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Right? If you believe in Jesus, he'll be your substitute. You don't have to perish. You can have a substitute, but penalty will be paid. Punishment will be made. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's the second term I want you to see this morning, justification. This is beautiful. Justification is uh, the legal declaration of righteousness over you. This is what God declares over you. When you come to know Christ, before you know Christ, your legal status is guilty. If you don't know Jesus as your savior in this room this morning, your legal status before God is guilty. You're a sinner, punishable by hell. But when you trust Christ and you receive his forgiveness, God automatically changes your legal status from guilty to not guilty. He changes it. It's an instantaneous change. I like the way MacArthur explains this when he says, when a pastor stands before two individuals that are about to get married, there are two individuals and their legal status is is single people as individuals. But he says, by the law, and by, by this covenant vested in me, I have, the, I have the authority to pronounce you man and wife. And they go in that moment from being two single people to being one family union, right? One family union. Immediately they're changed. Their legal status is changed. I love these stories you see sometimes of, of men or women who maybe they were, they were uh, charged uh, wrongly. Many of them have spent years and years in prison and then maybe DNA or some, something's come up and they've had a retrial. And the judge says, because this new evidence introduced, you are, you're not guilty anymore by the power vested in me, you are now not guilty. Just a moment before they were guilty and come from prison, the next moment they can go home and be free. That's justification. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, I love that. He is just, in other words, he's the only one with the legal right to pronounce you anything, but he's also the one that justifies you. He's just and the justifier. Here's another term I want us to look at. We saw it in that text, propitiation. If you ever read that word and went, I'm just gonna keep going, I'm not sure what's being said here. (laughs) Propitiation, it has to do with Christ's sacrifice for us. Not just any sacrifice though, it has to do with the ultimate, complete, final sacrifice for us. See, when Christ died, he took on himself our punishment, right? God has wrath, he is angry. He he has, even the Bible says, hatred of sin and sinners. And so because he's a holy God, he must punish. This is what Jesus did. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, let me have the punishment. And he, he moved God's attention of punishment off of those who are saved onto himself. That is propitiation. Him taking the punishment, removing God's punishing gaze from us 
onto himself. God's righteous anger has been satisfied, turned away from us onto Christ. 1 John 4.10 says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's another term, redemption. We use this word a lot in the church, to be redeemed. Uh, This is about payment. Through Christ's atonement, man is redeemed from bondage. When we talk about redemption, it's, it's people who've been held captive, bondage. They've been held captive in their sin. The law has said that we are sinners and Christ has made a payment for us. This is what he says in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This payment had to be made. And when Jesus made this payment for your sin and mine, we truly had freedom. We were truly made free. We were no longer held in bondage. We've been given freedom. I like the way Peter says it. 1 Peter 1.17 says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Last term I want us to look at before we finish is reconciliation. We talked about Adam and Eve and the fact that when they sinned, immediately change happened in their relationship with God. Where where at times they could spend with God, they, they would run to God, they would converse with God, they would spend time with God. When they sinned, now they hid from God. Their relationship is broken. Their relationship is destroyed with God. It's been destroyed, and for some of you, it's still destroyed. But Christ, in his death, in his atonement, in his payment for our sin, he gave us an opportunity to be reconciled to God. Immediately after Christ dies, the Bible tells us, some crazy things begin to happen in Jerusalem. Earthquakes, some people are rising from the dead. But one of the interesting things that happened inside the temple, remember this is the holy place and the holy of holies. This is the holiest place there is. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is where God's presence comes down to meet with a mediator for man, the the high priest. But when Jesus died on that cross, that nine-inch thick veil was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't a result of an earthquake. It was a result of a holy God giving his people a message. You don't have to come to me through a man any longer, a high priest any longer. Jesus has now reconciled us. Jesus has now brought us back together. And if you know him, if you trust him, if you're saved today, you can be reconciled to the Lord. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the uh, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Can I just tell you something as we close? Listen, 
as sinners. We're all sinners. We've all made great mistakes. None of us are righteous. None of us going to heaven apart from the grace of Jesus over our lives. God will punish sinners because he is holy, because he is just. So that means if you're in here today and you've never trusted Jesus to to save your soul, to change your life, if you've never trusted him, then I want you to know that you're gonna receive that punishment of hell. But you don't have to. You don't have to leave this place today and not know Christ as your savior. You can trust him, you can know him, you can walk in the joy of being forgiven and free. The Bible tells us that today, it says today is the the day of salvation. What that means is if God, if, if the holy God of the universe is speaking to your heart right now, if you feel conviction on your spirit right now and you know that you don't know Christ, Today is the day you need to do something about that because you know what? Tomorrow you may not feel that conviction. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to say, Lord, I will accept. I want what you've done for me on the cross. You've paid my penalty. I want to know you. Please forgive me of my sins. So I want to encourage us before we go into our groups this morning. Today and all week, this Passion Week, I I pray that we could somehow enter into mourning of our sin, mourning of our brokenness, just to remember who we've been, yet also remembering what Christ has done. It's good to remember who we've been and yet also remember what Christ has done for us. Never forget it because his blood shed on the cross has paid our penalty, taken our place, paid our debt, justified us and made our legal status not guilty. He's taken God's wrath from us. He's paid the ransom for us, giving us freedom. And he's reconciled us to the Father. That is the theology and the doctrine of the cross. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, Lord, if there's one person in this room, if there's even one person watching online, who senses the drawing power of the Holy Spirit in their life right now, who senses conviction over their sin, who senses worry about this very real place called hell. Lord, I'm not trying to scare anyone. And in so much love, I want them to know truth. God, I want them to know what you have done for them so that they may be saved. They may be ransomed. They may be set free. Their debt may be paid. God, in your grace, would you draw them by your mercy so that they would know you, Jesus, and not leave this place or turn off this broadcast and not have you as their Savior. God, would you change their heart and save them today? May they place their faith in you, Lord. God, I pray as we have this conversation for just a few minutes around these tables, do significant work in us as we connect one to another as the body of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're gonna do. If you're new to us, we're gonna take just a few minutes, 10 minutes or a little bit more, and we're just gonna discuss some of these questions that are on those cards in front of you. Engage with one another, ask these questions, Uh, spend a little bit of time getting into this doctrine of the cross. Okay, let's do it for for a few minutes and I'll come back and close this up.
We'll give you just another minute here and we'll wrap up. I want to thank you guys for entering into such good conversation and dialogue together. And uh, I really encourage you, you ought to just keep this going. Go to lunch together and keep the conversation going. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about the cross of Christ, when I think about what he paid for us, what he went through for us, I'm undone. I hope that this conversation today has intrigued you. I hope that it's brought you closer to what Jesus walked through. But most of all, I hope that it's, it's caused you to be thankful, be grateful for his sacrifice for you. And I just have to say this, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know Christ, or maybe you, right now you're listening to me, you're going, I, I'm not sure if I know Christ, I'm just not sure. I'm gonna be up here after we finish. I would love to spend some time talking with you, praying with you, encouraging you, looking at scripture with you. But there's no reason you have to leave this building today and not know Christ. We can know that he saved us, we can know that. And so if I can help you and encourage you to know that answer today, I would love to do that.